the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. I want to play this from David Bowie again and then talk a little bit about it. I, I, uh, I found it this morning. A friend of mine sent it to me. And, and it was about never playing to the gallery. Don't ever, ever play to the gallery. Don't play to the crowd. Uh, listen to what he said. Never play to the gallery, <laughs> I think. But you never learn that until much later on, I think. But never work for other people in what you do. Always, always remember that the reason that you initially started working was that there was something inside yourself that you felt that if you could manifest it in some way, you would understand more about yourself and how you coexist with the rest of society. And I, I think it's terribly dangerous for an artist to fulfill other people's expectations. I think they produce, they generally produce their worst work when they do that. And if, the other thing I would say is that if you feel safe in the area that you're working in, you're not working in the right area. Always go a little further into the water than you feel you're capable of being in. Go a little bit out of your depth. And when you don't feel that your feet are quite touching the bottom, you're just about in the right place to do something exciting. And that's the story of the Dancing in the Dark video. <laughs> a, tra- a tragic oh, right. chapter in global history. He did. He talked about that. I, I watched a couple of videos from him today. He, he talked about that. I thought, you know, he said, you know, I thought, hey, this is commercial. This is where it's at. He said, boy, was that wrong? Well, this, in a way, really, it's an example of what you don't do. He's describing mm-hmm. don't do the Dancing in the Dark video. Yeah, he, right? is. he is. Uh, he, he and really he said, is. and he said, you don't learn that until too late. Yeah. And it's true. You yeah. have to go through that, I think, to actually figure it out. Yeah, you do. You do. You know, what I find interesting is, you know, what what was the 1960s? What was that all about? That was about the greatest generation coming home after complete decimation. I mean, just, I don't think we can really even begin to understand um, what the rest of the Western world was like after World War II. You know, we came back and we started making big, huge cars with tail fins and everything else because we had the factories, we had the resources, we had the money, we had the gold, we had everything. Europe didn't. You remember, you know, those the three-wheeled little cars that, you know, England made? Okay, they made those three little car, the three-wheeled cars for two reasons. One, the government was out of control. But two... They couldn't afford big cars. They couldn't afford anything of any size because they were broke. They were destitute after the war. And and so they didn't really start digging themselves out of that until 60s, 70s, and 80s. They didn't have the good times that we had in the 50s and the 60s and the you know up until the 70s. They didn't have those. And so... What was the 1960s? What was that about? That was about the rejection of what they saw their parents build. And their parents just wanted to come home and build this idyllic little space that didn't have any horrors in it. It didn't have what, what the Soviet Union had. It didn't have what, what Europe had just gone through, what Germany had gone through, what Spain was going through. It was perfect. It was good. It was wholesome. And so the kids knew, well, wait a minute. Hang on. My mom is not like that. There were problems in my house. 
but everybody's pretending because they're trying to create this image and that's not what it is. And so the kids rejected it and that gave us the hippie generation. And that's what we've been doing. The hippie generation begat the, the excess. So we have, we have this crunch of the hippies and the people like Donald Trump. You know, that's the same generation. One generation went, no, man, smoke dope, free love, and rock on Marx. The other went, you are an idiot, and went into amass wealth and build something. Okay? But unlike the previous generation, when they built something, they wanted to build something that lasts, they just wanted to build wealth. So you had wealth is evil and greed is good. That's the 60s generation. So now the generation that I'm in just watched them. And we were kind of the forgotten generation. And we just kind of watched them and did our own thing. But we were always just a little bit behind. So we begat children who saw that access and that Marxism and some of them are are gravitating towards that and the Marxism is is once again kind of cool because everybody who's living in these homes know there's no meaning here it's why people who are younger are starting to feel like I want to get rid of everything I don't want I don't want to have all of that stuff I don't want to have the life of my parents just like the kids of the 60s did. They didn't want the life of their parents because they knew that was meaningless. They knew that it was it was being hidden by cocktails and Xanax. And now what's being hidden is being hid, hidden by the drug of Facebook. It's not perfect. It's not what it is. And so people are once again hungry for something real. You have no desire, because I have, Tanya and I have talked about this for well, probably a year. Just sell everything. It's just, I'm, I, I got there in the 90s where I was kind of going through a period where I was like, I want to sell absolutely everything and just start all over again. And I feel the same way. Start all over again. Sell it all. My kids are the ones who are like, yes, dad, do it. Because we have a garage full of boxes <laughs> that we haven't opened for like four moves ago. Get rid of it all. You have no desire to do that? Uh, no, I do not. <clears throat> no. Uh, that's, I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to find a desire to do it. And uh, no, I don't. I mean, I, I think there's certainly the decluttering of our lives is something that I think is generally speaking... Um, can be a positive at times. Yeah. So I don't. I I think there's an element of it I kind of agree with, but I mean I I don't I I don't find uh material things complicating. I, I think sometimes they're enjoyable. That's not how I base my life on it. But yeah, okay. Uh, so wait, so I'm not saying material things are bad mm -hmm. by any stretch. Mm -hmm. You know, you that's up to you to decide. But you don't have a lot of stuff like we have a lot of stuff that we're like. Yeah, and that was given to us by so and so, and yeah, we never use it, and it's in a, you know, it's in a closet or it's there, but but we don't we don't, 
you know, we don't we, we can't really get rid of it because why? Because of why? Well, we never use it. I, the one thing I should point out is I do live with the Joseph Stalin of decluttering. Um, oh. So uh, you don't there, have that. There's four things in my home right now. Four. Um, there's one in one room. I think there's two in another room, and then there's one <laughs> other room. I think there's one more thing. But now, she's selling she's, that. She's very. She, she's. Uh, my wife is very much like just get rid of it. You know, she she it, just because she doesn't like clutter. She hates clutter. I hear the word clutter more than any other word in my home. <laughs> now I'm much more of the person like I can. You sure get she's not calling you a mother? <laughs> no, just... she says mother mother clutter. Right, okay, that's right. what it means. Right. Right. Um, she uh, she I get attached to things like you know there, there's certain like toys my kids had as they were growing up, and like, I just can't get rid of them. You know, because I can just remember, I can look down and see Zach or Ainsley playing with that toy. And I'm like, I can, I cannot get rid of that toy. I get like that. I can get attached to things. She's just like, I don't care. Burn it. You know, like she just doesn't care. Um, So our house is, uh, I wouldn't say, uh, it's certainly not clear of, you know, she likes her stuff too. So, I mean, it's not, it's not clear of material things by any reason, by any means, but it is, uh, it's a, it's a pretty simplified place, I would say. See, everything in my house, I'm the opposite. Everything in my house, I am, I've decided I am a hoarder. I, I'm a hoarder. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> not a poor hoarder. Right. So, yeah. so Rich I, hoarders are called collectors. Yeah. Yes. Eccentric collectors. Yes. Uh, no, hey, I'm not. I got this old piece of paper right. from 3,000 years ago. Wow, that's great. Uh, yeah. you know. I don't know. I mean, I am a hoarder. I've just I've discovered yeah. that I can call myself eccentric. I can call myself a collector. Mm-mm, I'm a hoarder. Yeah. Because everything in my house, everything has a story. Absolutely everything. It's not like I go out and just buy stuff. I go look for things that, and they may not even be valuable, but they have a story behind it. Yeah, and so everything in my life has a story. That's I. I believe there's a certain. This is it doesn't quite apply to you. No offense, but there's a certain amount of wealth that you one acquires in which that's what you do with it. Is you just buy stories. You're just you're purchasing a story I've to tell. This way. You're like this way when you had I, I, had I knew no you money. when you had like nine dollars yes. or actually negative much more than nine dollars. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and you were still doing this. You're, you know, I think wealth just makes you good at the things that you are. For example, you're now a good hoarder. You're really good at it. You have lots of really fancy things that you hoard. Congratulations. Yeah, but it's not really. It's still still a lot of crap. I mean, I was. Yeah, oh, yeah. I was. Yeah. We, we, some, people, some people were here last night and they were here for the uh, Mercury Museum. And we were looking through a bunch of stuff that what are we going to put out and what, what would be interesting to them and yada, yada, yada. And so, you know, we get this. Um, just amazing stuff and then you know we get down to oh that's the typewriter that you know uh actually they use to you know uh type the the uh peace treaty in the pacific you know for world war ii what the hell am i doing with a typewriter like that who who, who wants that what why do i even have that right. how did i even acquire that i don't even know how did that happen i remember buying it and I remember thinking, that's great. What the hell was wrong with me? I have, you ready for this one? We have a rat. We have a stuffed rat. Okay. It's the ugliest damn thing you've ever seen. And in the butt of the stuffed rat is a fuse. And it was full of C4. Now we've removed all the C4. But it was a rat used by the French resistance 
they would put them in the boiler rooms and they would they would stuff them full of C4, put a, a detonating device up their butt and then throw them into the coal things to where when they were shoveling coal, the Nazis were shoveling coal in their big industrial plants. They would just pick up the rat and just shovel it into the and it would blow up. And so it would stop all of their industry. Okay, now the guy who came up with that is the guy who uh, was uh, who who uh, Q is based on in James Bond movies. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. he's the guy who came up with the explosive explosive butt wrap a rat. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, did he call it that? Did he call it? I the don't explosive know. He probably rat? he probably. He probably called it something different. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I, okay. What, am I, what are we going to do with the rat? What are we going to do with the rat? And you know what I said? You know what I said what last did, night? What did you say? Do we have anything from Q, too? Because it would be cool if we had something from, you know, James Bond movies, too, so we could tie the rat along with the whatever. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with me? <laughs> Glenn Beck. The